Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. The president of the Amazon conservation team, Mark Plotkin, is here. Mark is an ethnobotanist by trade, and we get into that. He's written uh, several books, including Tales of a Shaman's Apprentice, which is also a documentary featuring him, Medicine Quest in Search of Nature's Healing Secrets, and most recently, The Amazon, What Everyone Needs to Know, he also has an excellent podcast called Plants of the Gods, where he talks about various plants and things found in nature that have medicinal properties and stuff like that. So super interesting. It's a little bit of a detour from what we usually talk about here at Prevail, but um, it's super interesting. He's great and uh, very, very funny. I laughed a lot during the episode. And, um, you know, honestly, I need a little detour. This has been a weird week. This, the news is not... Uh, it's been it's been sort of bleak this week, you know, and there's so many terrible things happening. But the one thing I wanted to talk about up front just quickly, once again, we've had a, a school shooting. Um, once again, it's like little kids under the age of 10, you know, um, who died. Once again, the Republicans are just fucking completely useless, just useless, soulless ghouls, almost comically so. I mean, it's, it's almost a, a parody of itself how soulless these fucking people are. And how steeped in this weird gun culture. I don't even know if we can call it gun culture. You know, we have the guy from Tennessee, Andy Ogles. I've made fun of his name before because it could be Andy, you know, molests, Andy grooms. Um, I guess Andy does groom because he's got pictures of like his like toddler kids with these big guns on his Insta. And I mean, 
I, I just don't understand that. You know, it's one thing to say, okay, I believe the Second Amendment, we have a right to bear arms, blah, blah, blah. But in what reality is it okay to expose your, your toddler to this sort of horrible death machine? I mean, what brain would think that that is okay? You know, there's lots of things that, that adults uh, enjoy that are not suitable for children. You know, I like my, my Manhattan as, as, as people who watch the five, eight know, that doesn't mean I'm going to like mix one up and put it in a bottle and feed it to my fucking toddler. Come on, dude. Uh, there's something wrong fundamentally with, with this. It's gotten way too crazy and I don't know what the solution is, but this stuff keeps happening. We keep pushing back against it. And then the moment passes and because of the composition of the Senate and stuff like that, nothing can get done, even though the vast majority of American people want meaningful gun reform. There's been a lot of blame on the NRA, and certainly the NRA is awful. But I, I, we need to remember here that the NRA was infiltrated by Russians. You know, Maria Butina was in there. Alexander Torshin was in there. These NRA high ups were just, they were just in with the Russians. And I know people are like, Greg thinks everything's Russia. Blah, blah, blah. But this is a case where it actually happened. And why are they infiltrating the NRA? What, what do they want out of that? Um, you know, there are gun laws in Russia. They don't have this kind of stuff going on there. Um, so why does he want it here? Why do the Russians want to inf uh, influence policy here to make guns more readily available? Because they want this shit to happen, okay? They cannot beat us militarily. They're trying to beat us in other ways. And one of the ways that they're beating us is by arming us to the teeth, spewing out this garbage 2A propaganda, and just sitting back and watching us kill each other with these mass shootings. This is something that's real and is happening. And you know nobody's really talking about it in that way. This is part of the op. If we're at war with these, these forces that, you know, it's not just Putin, but that um, these autocracies that are trying to, to hit at democracy, this is one, one place where the war is happening. And we have to be more awake to that and, and, and recognize what the fuck is happening. And that's the way it should be framed, in my opinion. Trying to split hairs about what the Second Amendment means is not the right way to approach this. The right way to approach this is, hey, there is a global war going on right now between the forces of fascism and the forces of democracy. This shit belongs to the forces of fascism. It's enabling, it's making us weaker. That's what it's doing. All the gun violence just makes us weaker. And they win when this shit happens. They win every fucking time. And you look at the politicians that support all of this stuff. Your Ted Cruz's and these sleazebag people like that. Lindsey Graham had a terrible statement yesterday. What do they all have in common? I mean, come on. How much more obvious can this shit get? So, look, I, I it, it's hard for me to process this. It's so sad. It's so terrible. And the solutions are so fucking obvious that it, it, you know, it boggles the mind why we can't do something about it. Somebody tweeted that, you know, the gun control debate ended after Sandy Hook because once we decided that it was okay to sacrifice children, that's it. Where, where do we go from there? If the Republicans are okay with that, that they have no soul, they can't be bargained with. And uh, that's where we are now. And it's, it really makes me sad and angry. Well, what can you do about it? I, I loved that uh, Jamal Bowman shouting at that idiot Massey um, in Congress. Maybe we need more of that. I don't know. 
I, I'm I'm fresh out of ideas, but I'm telling you right now, it's not just the NRA that's that's up to this shit. This is what they want, the bad guys want, okay, in this global battle. And we have to recognize it. It's a front in that war. And that's what it is. So anyway, lots of other bad stuff going on. I don't want to talk about it. Maybe we'll talk about it on the 5-8. One more announcement up front is that I'm taking the week off from all content creation. This is going to be the last podcast until next Friday, which is the whatever it is, April uh, something, 14th, I think. I'll be back that week. I'm taking the full spring break week off. And the next time you hear from me content-wise after tonight's 5-8 will be on Easter Sunday. I'll write a, uh, a Sunday page. So you have that to look forward to. In the meantime, I've talked long enough. We'll be right back with Mark Plotkin. Down in Tallahassee, in bed with the mom, lives Governor Meatball, and he wants the top job. He's taking on Disney, he's fighting with Trump, but he sounds like a wussy. When he speaks on the stump He's a crystal fascist He banned all the books His wife is a fame whore And his lackeys all crooks The voters see through him He'd say they've been Governor Meatball, his campaign is doomed. Mark Plotkin, welcome to Prevail Podcast. Good to be here. I'm a loyal listener. It's uh, it's great to have you on. I've been wanting to talk to you for some time. You you also have a podcast, which is excellent, which we'll talk to later, uh, Plants of the Gods. And um, you know a lot of really interesting things, and you know a lot of interesting things about, about a subject that I know very little about, which is science, but very specifically um, ethnobotany. Um, what is that? Just for, you know, the, the, the remedial uh, listeners, meaning me, <laughs> how, how do you define that? Very simply, ethnobotany is the study of people and plants and how they're interrelated. But um, for most ethnobotanists, we make a living in the tropics working with indigenous healers. Uh, because as my mentor would say, we may have degrees from Harvard and Yale, but these guys running around in penis strings know a lot more than we do. <laughs> um, so when did your interest in this begin? Were you were you a little kid or how, how, did, how did you decide that this was going to be your career? You know, I grew up in, in New Orleans, and I was always interested in nature, particularly in reptiles. But I was a college dropout and took a class in the night school at Harvard, where I was working as a schlub. And it was the botany and chemistry of hallucinogenic plants, which, this being the, the tail end of the 60s in a cultural sense, the idea of hallucinogens and uh, uh, primitive uh, cultures and rainforest was pretty appealing. I guess I haven't outgrown it yet. <laughs> Okay, so that's interesting. I okay, I didn't realize you grew up in New Orleans. Maybe I did know that. Um, I love New Orleans. It's such a great city. What was it like to grow up there? Were you in, in like in the Bourbon Street? Like, what part of the the city did you live in? 
No, two blocks over. Okay. Uh, I lived uptown near Tulane University, but my father ran a shoe store in the French Quarter. So I'd spend every waking moment that I could in the French Quarter, which was the crossroads of cultures surrounded by pimps, whores, musicians, uh, jugglers, uh, weirdos, uh, Sicilians. I mean, you name it. And so it was a great sort of pre-introduction ethnobotany. The idea, uh, it wasn't just a bunch of white guys and that people could live pretty basically and, and live well and, you know, the, have the sense to stimulate it. Fascinating. So, okay. So you, you went to the Amazon, you've spent a lot of time in the Amazon region with the indigenous people. You were a shaman's apprentice, uh, and wrote a book about it. So tell everybody what, what how did you, how did you wangle that? Like, <laughs> is it through the schooling or did you just show up there one day with a, like, how did that happen? Well, I was working in a museum and there was a fellow there who said he really needed some help in the field. He was a graduate student named Russ Mittermeier. And I thought this guy's the most swashbuckling adventurer I've ever met. Um, so I said, well, I'll go, I mean, I'll, I'll save the money and I'll, I'll pay my own way if I can sort of follow you. And he said, come on along. That was 1977. So in a sense, I'm still at it. And so it was an investment in myself to pay my own way down there, which I think keeps a lot of people from uh, undertaking these adventures. And then I got into graduate school and could get my way paid down there. And then I got a job and could get my way paid down there and draw salaries. It's a very simple version of it, but it started out just kind of, I was a, a kid looking for something to do, looking for adventure, looking for romance and ended up in the rainforest and I'm still there. When you say you go to the, I, I, in my mind, you know, which is just based on like cities and and urban centers, that's just a big blank spot on the in the map of my mind. So how do you even get there? This is again, I'm I'm going to ask you very remedial questions at, at sure. certain points. Um, so please bear, forgive my my uh, stupidity in this area. But what you fly to no, Rio or something? How do you get there? I have had the honor and privilege of working with indigenous healers from southern Brazil to southern Mexico, so I covered a lot of ground. But the area that I know best is the northeast Amazon, where Suriname, Guyana, French Guiana, and Brazil come together. It's really an overlooked part of the world from the, by the in terms of the scientific community. So to get there, I've got to fly to Suriname, which involves flying to Miami, flying to Port of Spain, Trinidad, flying to uh, Paramaribo, Suriname, and then finding a cargo plane to the interior, because not all planes can land at this little Indian village. And so, I, ironically, I just figured it takes me longer to get to Paramaribo, Suriname in South America than it would to get to Nairobi. That's how remote it is and how few flights go there. I once asked the American ambassador if he knew how many American tourists had been to Suriname last year. And he said, yes, I know exactly 46. <laughs> So it's gone up quite a bit since then, but not a whole lot. My my boss at my day job uh, went there once uh, to get banknotes and years ago. And uh, he said it was one of the hardest places to get to and one of the most remote places. And then I think the play, he got there on a Friday and he had, he, had to, he had to stay there for like two weeks or something like that. And it was really, <laughs> you know, not a lot to do. I think maybe the restaurant scene wasn't quite, uh, you know, all, all there. But so my, but my point in getting at this is you really... In the modern age, when when you know one can take a channel to get from from London to uh, Brussels in like an hour or whatever it is, right. this is quite an undertaking to go to to the interior uh, uh, of the thing um, of the Amazon. Is you know it's far and it's 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 even just getting there is is quite a travel. So, okay, so um, talk about the uh, well. First of all, you you mentioned you you go to school. You have a PhD. Where did you get the PhD? What is it in? And, and then that. 
uh, got you to the Amazon? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, because I was a dropout working at a university, I was able to take night school courses, and I fell under the spell of a fellow who's been called the father of ethnobotany, Richard Schultes. And so I took all of his courses, some of them three times, quite obsessive. My mother says, I like college so much, I crammed four years into seven. <laughs> so when I finally finished, I got a scholarship to the Yale School of Forestry, and I had a master's there. Then I went back to Harvard working as a researcher, and uh, Schultes had retired by then, but I wanted to get a PhD, and I was able to enroll in a program at Tufts and have him on my thesis committee, which I wouldn't be able to do at Harvard. So it was a bit of a checkered career, not a straight line, but you know, I think that it's kind of uh, short-sighted to to force 18-year-old kids to figure out what they want to be when they grow up. When I was 18, I had two things in my mind, and neither of them was my career uh, or <laughs> or a job. <laughs> right. Hallucinogenics. You've already you've already mentioned the uh, the draw. That's one of them. Uh, yep. <laughs> I think I can guess. I can guess what the other one what the other one probably was. I think so too. Uh, yeah. LSU football. Yeah. Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. So talk about the experience with the. You, you're there. The, uh, what a shaman is 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 an uh, like an expert in these things that's part of the indigenous population that knows about the plants and the and the animal life in the area. Do I have it? Is that accurate or? Yeah, a shaman is a healer. It's, in the Amazon, it's usually a man, but not always. And he or she is an expert in plants, is an expert in the spirit world, is an expert in the weather, is a keeper of legends, is a lawgiver. I mean, it's really kind of one stop shopping. And the two pillars of shamanic medicine, well, let me back up. The two pillars of Western medicine, from my perspective, were the chemistry, in other words, what's in the pills, and the technology, x-rays, CAT scans, what have you. The two pillars of shamanic medicine, or the chemistry, what's in the plants, and we now know they use insects and frogs medicinally as well. And uh, this sort of spirit world, placebo world, invisible world. Uh, that, that, of course, Westerners have no real knowledge of and can't manage it. That's why shamans can sometimes, sometimes, sometimes uh, heal things that Western physicians cannot. The mistake that people make is they hear about hallucinations and they think, okay, that's the answer. I can buy this stuff off the Internet and heal myself. Or that shamans have all the answers for everything, which is equally silly. The middle ground is somewhere in between, between the microchip and the shaman. That's not one or the other. <laughs> that's, that's the right line. Now, the... It, you've written extensively about this, and uh, recently you wrote a, a piece in the in the Times, you know, sort of covering all of these amazing medical things that that uh, scientists have figured out based on discoveries in the Amazon, right? And uh, to me, that it that's sort of a mind blow because again, I, I know nothing about. So, I mean, science in general is not my strong suit, but you know, you get a pill from the pharmaceutical place. I I don't I have no idea. It's just a pill. I don't know what's in it or how it got made or why it works or anything like that so to to go through there and and try to figure out how scientists devise this stuff is is pretty fascinating um one of the things that they you know that you mentioned in the piece is about the venoms and the poisons that 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 are used and there was the um you know the scientist from the what the, the guy that says the dose is the the dose is the poison right what's his name paracelsus paracelsus yeah he actually had like six names and then <laughs> von, von hoheim yes yeah <laughs> but he said the dose makes the poison and and that's true i mean i covered this in my podcast plants of the gods where something that could harm you in great amounts can heal you in smaller amounts and vice versa i mean if you take 100 aspirin it'll kill you 
So we're now looking at things like snake venom and scorpion venom, which may have therapeutic potential. And even if it doesn't, it's teaching us new things about the nervous system. So it's not like, well, if a drug doesn't come to market, it, it you know, so what? Because if you look at the value of the herbal industry, there's a lot of healing going on on there uh, based on stuff that, that's not in the pharmacy. But once again, you know, not all herbs can do all things. Uh, what we want, I think, that the, the medical office, the future, the pharmacy, the future needs to have the, the, the traditional prescription pharmaceuticals, but herbs uh, and other potions. I mean, Chinese medicine, if it didn't work, how can there's so many Chinese people? Of course, there's something to that. Same thing with Ayurvedic medicine. I understand the science behind it, but there doesn't seem any shortage of people in India. So right. clearly, all of these systems do something well. The worry in, in, in my research group with these shamanic healers is they're pre-literate cultures for the most part. And so the knowledge is not written down. And as modernity presses in from all sides, whether it's missionary activity or climate change, what have you, that these forests and 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 this knowledge is, is being lost. Yeah, you mentioned that in the piece, and and the uh, we'll we'll talk about that in the second half of it because I'm very concerned, as I think everybody is, about you know what that means and what what the effects of of climate change are um, there in particular because you know the, the forest, the rainforest there is obviously so important to uh, you know life on Earth and stuff. Um, so I do want to cover that, but talk a little bit about the other um, just so people who haven't read or aware some of the um, discoveries or, or, or medicinal, like there's a way that what you were talking about where it's in the middle, it's, it's the, it's the herb or the, you know, the frog layer skin or something like that. Plus the chemical ability to, you know, break that down, figure out what it is, how to mass produce it, how to mix it with other things to make it, you know, usable and safe. One of the things in the article was uh, statins, which, you know, a tour of a statin, I take that, you know, for my cholesterol. And I was, I was interested, I was surprised to learn this is something that's relatively new and came out of research in the Amazon, right? Well, statins didn't come from the Amazon. Statins okay. came from a, a fungus that was found elsewhere. But I've never met a physician who knew that statins were a natural product and they came from penicillium fungus. Okay. So that when you, when, you, when you ask people what comes from penicillium, they say penicillin. Well, actually, that's not the first gift of penicillium fungus to our species, blue cheese. The blue and blue cheese is penicillium fungus. Statins are penicillium fungus. And as much as we know, or as little as we know about the plants of the Amazon, we know even less of the fungi of the Amazon or all tropical forests or all forests everywhere. But just this week, Greg, uh, they found a new species of hallucinogenic mushroom in Ecuador um, and named it after the great Paul Stamets, who was a leading mycologist. If people have seen fantastic fungi, it's one of the best documentaries ever made, highly recommended. So if we can still go into the forest and find new hallucinogenic fungi, or if we can go into the Amazon River and find two new species of electric eels, electric eels have been studied since Linnaeus 250 years ago. And now now studying the batteries don't mind how to make pacemakers last longer in the human body. Imagine what's out there in terms of the, the little brown crawling things that nobody's ever looked at. So I started out at the World Wildlife Fund, and it was all about whales and elephants, things like that. And yeah, we should be protecting those things. But the little creepy crawlies and some of the poisonous creepy crawlies may end up having more therapeutic potential and benefit for all of us. It's really interesting the way that... that um... And you you write about this too in some of the other pieces about about ethnobotany, the way that it's layered with myth and legend and stuff like that, and uh, the properties of these men of these plants and stuff. Uh, I don't know. There's a literary value to it, is what I'm trying to say. I think it's like uh, you know the idea that this thing is poisonous and the snake is poisonous, and but it can save you. 
that's like a plot of some movie that we would some Star Wars thing that we would watch, right? I think that's what Mandalorian's going, you know, this season. So there's but... plenty of movies that could be made from this, but uh, you know that TV series, uh, The Rest of Us, that's all based on the Cordyceps fungus. Okay, this is why I did a little piece, which I'll send you. Maybe we can put it in the end notes called "Why Ethnobotanists Don't Read Science Fiction." Okay, this is a fungus that attaches itself to insects when they go past. The fungus burns a hole in the insect exoskeleton. The fungus inserts itself inside the insect exoskeleton. The fungus eats all of the insect's non-vital organs. The fungus then goes up and eats the insect brain, causing the insect to split apart and release its spores above the forest. This is the inspiration for this TV series. It's a smash. So, yeah, there's many, many, many stories like this in nature. Um, some of them are quite lovely. Some of them are quite horrifying. But, you know, when you think about what weird and wonderful chemicals could still be out there, you got to remember that Mother Nature has been inventing weird and wonderful chemicals for three billion years. So she's yeah. definitely got a head start on our, our, our best chemists. Now, my wife was getting into that Last of Us show, um, but and she usually doesn't like that kind of thing. But she was like, uh, while we were watching the first episode, she said, well, I know this is this can't actually happen. She said, I know that it can't happen because uh, because the, the fungi, they can't, you know, if it's if it's above a certain degree. To, so is is that accurate? Can this not happen? Because they, they sort of say in the thing there's a suspension of disbelief where the, the thing mutates. But uh, I think all of us, as we go through life, learn you should never say never. Right. Um <laughs> But at this point in time, there's no danger of that fungus invading us and, you know, eating our insides and popping out of our head. Uh, but who's to say that it wouldn't happen in the future? <laughs> so it's better to say, as far as we know right now, it, it's not happening. It can't happen. But with all the changes going on in the world, it's better to be safe than sorry. <laughs> now, you mentioned the documentary, uh, Fantastic Fungi. So I think I, after I, I watched it, I wrote you because I felt like I wanted to see what your your thoughts were about it because I wasn't sure if you would be uh, what you just said, which is that it's great, or if you'd be like, "This guy's on my corner," you know <laughs> what's going on. So, uh, but it, it to watch that it really I learned about that you know they're all sort of connected underneath the ground, all of these mushrooms and and and, and fungi, and it, I got the sense, the deep sense that you know this whole planet belongs to the mushrooms, and we're just you know we're just here almost by accident or something. Um, what were your thoughts watching that that movie when you saw it the first time? Like, what, what... when you're close to a, a subject, you watch it with different eyes. You know, yeah. if you're a historian, you pick up a popular history book, and the first you're going, "That's not right. That's not right. That's right." So, <laughs> because you're a little bit of an intellectual snob, and I'm watching the thing, going, "This is great. They're really telling it. it's all right. It's all accurate." So, I loved it. I've recommended it. I mean, if I had a commission for all the people I turned on to it, I'd be wealthier than I am today. So, I I, I think it's terrific. And, and one of the the the, the backstories there that I thought they told well without sensationalizing it, is this whole idea of the psychedelic renaissance where these hallucinogens start, you know, psilocybin, but many others are offering new treatment for incurable diseases like depression, schizophrenia, PTSD. A lot of money going into PTSD right now because they're having a lot of success treating some veterans, not all of it, uh, with it. So it just once again shows that how little we know about stuff that we're still learning about at the same time, we're destroying it faster than ever. So on the one hand, it's very heartening. On the other hand, it's very, uh, very disturbing. When did the, when did the idea of like micro dosing come about? Was, is that a fairly recent thing or people have been doing it for centuries? No, I'd, I'd never heard about it until recently. I mean, it, it's a thing as they say, uh, yeah. meaning it's a recent phenomenon. 
but there's a fellow at LSU Medical School uh, in my hometown, New Orleans, who has been looking at small doses of hallucinogenic uh, principles for treating things like asthma, which is not something you think of associated with hallucinogens. The point being that these compounds are bioactive. They do something in the human bodies. They may be affecting something other than our mind. And once again, shows that the value of this stuff, we, we it's, it's much more shamanic in a sense. It's not like, okay, this is good for this mental ailment, but for nothing else. Right. And I think that's where this microdosing is going to come into this modern research. It's going to show that actually there are some effects in the body, but it's too early to, to quantify them. But it, it just means it's very exciting. So do I believe in microdosing? Science isn't something you need to believe in. It either is or isn't. It's a fact or it's not. So early indications are that this microdosing is having a positive effect in some cases. I think like anything you do with hallucinogens, it's, it's often oversold. But uh, Paul Stamets, who I mentioned earlier, who's in uh, Fantastic Fungi, has developed a test that's showing some increased uh, enhanced coordination uh, using these microdoses. So I, I guess the short answer question is stay tuned, uh, but there are some very positive indications that it does have some positive effects. That's good. This is all, you know, this is all good news. Other th- the, the second part of the podcast will be focusing on the bad news. Uh, but, you know, for, for now, this is the, this is good news. Now, you've written, uh, as I mentioned, these these pieces about uh Ethno history, I guess the the ethno botanical uh, approach to history, and I found them fascinating because uh, it's something that I just haven't thought about uh, at all, and and it should. The relationship between you know plants and people is obviously super important throughout historical times. Uh, in one of the articles, you talk about you know why Rome fell, and it might be you know. Uh, plant-based in, in in some sense in the de- deforestation where they cut down the, you know so many trees in Italy and and and, and in the, that they you know the society can't sustain itself in the way that it had before um, which there's obviously uh, things that we can learn and apply from that to our own society but um, what interested me most of all in these pieces are these these sort of you know, things that we all know and some that we don't um, and what the histories really were. So I just want to throw a few of these at you so you can talk about them because I, I think they're really cool and people are going to want to hear about them. So, uh, okay, the first one, wine. So wine is good for us, I guess, is what is the takeaway. I think that wine is had more to do with the development of, of Western culture than any other plants other than the cereal grains, wheat, rye, things like that, and corn in the New World, because this is something that came out of the Caucasus. The, the, the breadbasket for wine is that area where Georgia and Iran and Turkey come together. It's very clearly that is where wine was first created. Now, wine makes itself, okay? If you let grapes ferment, they'll produce wine. Uh, with beer, you have to make it, which is another story. But when people started making wine, they found these uh, fabulous ruins in that part of the world. Really, the expert in this is Pat McGovern at the University of Pennsylvania Museum. And that is was then taken to what we call the Middle East, moving west, uh, where those people glommed onto it uh, and started moving around the Mediterranean, where the Greeks became obsessed with it. And they built their economy uh, based on wine and trading for wine. And Greece is actually a pretty crappy country when it comes to soils. There's no major rivers in Greece. Think about it. And so they wanted to find a place with better soils uh, and rivers. So what has the best soils in the Mediterranean? A place called Italy. Yeah. because of Mount Vesuvius. And so that Italy was settled by a bunch of tribes who were there, but 
as Greek colonies as well, Magna Grecia as they called it. And they that ended up with the trading with Carthage and moving into France and Spain and places like that. So this is much of the evolution of Western culture, which I never learned in history class, and I'm kind of a history nut, that these plants undergirded a part of this. This is not to say that, you know, the Western culture is due to wine, but I do think it's fair to say that Western culture, if you really want to understand the roots of it and how it got moved around, and that's a, intended to be a pun. Uh, it certainly <laughs> had to do with the grapevine. <laughs> Um, now you mentioned beer. That was the next thing on my list. I don't think you that it's in the article, but I remember reading long ago that the recipe or the 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 how to make beer, the formula, whatever you want to call it, was written on some pyramid and that the Egyptians knew how to do it. Is that true or is that just I just read that on some pre-internet it's thing? Probably oversimplistic. There are accounts of beer making amongst the Sumerians and the Babylonians and people like that. But here's what's interesting, just to repeat myself, that wine makes itself, but beer has to be to be made. So there's a debate in our community. I mean, not that that's a lot of people. <laughs> did, did, did these people invent bread to make beer or did they invent <laughs> beer to make bread? Because the two are tied in together. And this is something which has not been settled. But uh, in one of the articles I sent you on the ethnobotany of wine in the ancient Mediterranean, maybe we'll put a link in the show notes, this whole history of who drank beer and who drank wine. Okay, the people who drank beer were in, in, in much more arid places like Egypt. The people who drank wine were in uh, much more lush places like Italy. And there was, a, a, and, and if you don't think that that affects the world today, look at who drinks beer today, the Germans. Yeah. Okay, look at who drinks wine today, the Italians. That goes up to back 2,000 years to the, the history of empire and what people uh, evolved their culture around drinking. There's a great scene in I, Claudius, the great, you know, uh, Robert Graves novel about, you know, Claudius and the thing where uh, the Germanic tribes um, win a battle and they take the wine barrels from the Romans that they, you know, they just win all the stuff at the camp. And then they proceed to drink the wine like it's beer because that's what they're used to drinking. And they get like so fucked up that they <laughs> they can't function because they drink too much of it too quickly. And uh, it's a pretty funny scene, something you don't think about, you know, but yeah, they're doing the, you know. Th well, there's an ethnobotany angle to I, Claudius that few people are aware of. My mentor Schultes went to Oaxaca in southern Mexico in the late 30s in search of magic mushrooms. And nobody knew there were magic mushrooms in Mexico or anywhere else. And he found them. Uh, and then his next stop was the Amazon where he went for a year and stayed for 14 Meanwhile, a banker in New York who worked for J.P. Morgan uh, was married to a Russian physician who loved mushrooms. Uh, in Russia, they grew up, you know, collecting and eating uh, mushrooms. But when they were on their honeymoon in the Catskills, uh, she said, oh, look, mushrooms, let's eat them. And he said, oh, my God, toadstools, no, we'll die. Well, she cooked them. Uh, she ate them. She didn't die, and they decided to work on the history of mushrooms and its impact in culture. These are the Wassons. Uh, so they became interested in how mushrooms affected human culture, and they decided they would try and settle the ultimate cold case, the death of Claudius. <laughs> okay. Which, according to Robert Graves and uh, Dias Caso and Suetonius, uh, his wife gave him uh, mushrooms. And that's what killed him. But nobody had ever figured out what they were. So they wanted to investigate this. Who knew more about Claudius than anybody else? This is in the 50s. Robert Graves. Yeah. So Valentina Wasson wrote to Graves. And together they figured out that it was the death cap mushroom. Wow. So okay. Yeah. Robert Graves, by the way, for anyone listening who doesn't know, is 
clearly one of the most brilliant people that ever <laughs> ever walked the earth. I mean, he has that book White Goddess that's just his notes on crazy ancient shit, and it's just I. Uh, you know, you got to really be a brainiac to follow that. I, I can't follow along that well, and I know a lot about Rome and all that stuff. But he's like next level with with his uh, with his research and stuff. So that's uh, well. That's I encourage people to start with I Claudius, Greg. Yeah, I Claudius is, is a wonderful book, is a fantastic book, and and, yeah. and then read Claudius the God the sequel, and then go back and and watch the BBC series, which yep. is absolutely terrific, and then go back and read the books again. The BBC series is sort of like. It's very similar to Star Trek in some ways because they're like our episodes. And at the beginning of the episode, some new good looking person shows up and then they're dead by the end of the episode. Like it, it, it has the same beats as as Star Trek. It's pretty interesting, I thought. And the connection to Star Trek is you have Patrick Stewart with hair yeah. playing Sejanus. Sejanus, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the difference. Uh, I Claudius, which is a gripping series, is a bunch of British guys wearing bath towels. Right. There's no computer generated imagery there. There's no scenes in the Coliseum, but it, the story is so gripping. You don't care. Yeah, it's very, very good. And and most of it is about Caligula. You know, there's Tiberius. Caligula is a, a vast uh, part in the middle of the story, which is, you know, he's a fascinating character. OK, uh, the next one uh, on my list of, of uh, substances here is opium. That's been around forever. Um, but when how, how long has it been around? Well, I think the earliest finds were maybe 5,000 years ago in the Middle East. And clearly, it was easily and early recognized as a very powerful painkiller. And then people started using it for a bunch of things, including uh, recreation, which is, of course, is dangerous because it is so highly addictive. But it's, again, one of those plants is deeply intertwined with our society. If you think that's ancient history and, you know, uh, a Chinese opium den, that's ancient history. Look at all the problems of drugs uh, around the world because a lot of those like heroin uh, or methadone are tied directly to opium. So the story continues. Yeah. The, the opium thing with China and Britain is really a, I, I think people don't realize what, what happened there, which is that the, the British wanted tea. The Chinese were like, we don't, you don't have anything that we want. Fuck off. And then the, the British snuck opium in there that they were growing in India and got enough people addicted to it that they had to then trade it for the, that was kind of the root of it, uh, which is really, you know, kind of evil and nefarious, uh, you know, all because of the tea. Fascinating stuff. Um, next and last on my list of substances is myrrh, which we uh, which we, we, we know about from the Bible. And as you point out from the life of Brian, comma, quite the best Monty Python movie. And and really, Life of Brian applies to so much stuff happening now that it kind of blows my mind to watch it. It, it really does. Like, uh, yeah. Anyway, so tell us about myrrh. I will, but I want to talk about the life of Brian first. Let's, let's do that. Uh, yeah, please. After I graduated from college, <laughs> I was reading an issue of Harvard Magazine where they had this wonderful old classics professor who was much beloved. He was sort of a goodbye Mr. Chip's character. In his last class, he was teaching the grandchildren of of kids in his first class, you know, 40, 50 years before. And so they they were interviewing this this wonderful classic scholar, sort of an exit interview about lessons learned and what we can tell from the ancient world about the world we live in. And they said, so what is the, the greatest cinematic depiction of, of the Middle East when Jesus walked there? You know, was it Quo Vadis? Was it Ben-Hur? He said, oh, no, without a, date, without a doubt, it was the life of Brian. <laughs> I believe I believe it. It's it it really is. Anybody who hasn't seen it, go go see it immediately. But uh, there's the one scene that I love where um, it, it's the the you know they're trying to 
to do an insurrection against the Romans. And um, it's a, it's the Judean people's front meeting. And they're like, what have the Romans ever done for us? They're like, well, they built the roads. Like, well, yeah, you know, the roads. And then they just list 20 things that the Romans did. <laughs> it's the most brilliant defense of, of colonialism ever put on film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that is one way of looking at it it's it's very very good and uh but to, you know but to tie that tie burr into the life of brian there's this hilarious scene where they go into the wrong manger and they give uh brian's mother uh the gift of the magi which is of course gold and frankincense and myrrh and she says eh, next time just bring more gold <laughs> but not so much the myrrh reason, next time <laughs> the gift was gold and myrrh and frankincense as myrrh and frankincense were the antibiotics of the ancient world. Everybody was kind of pretty stinky back then, but it wasn't just incense to make things smell better. It killed bacteria and it's been tested in the lab. And this is long before penicillin was discovered. So this was the gift of life. It wasn't just gold and two sort of things that nobody wanted. It's also, it, it, it had midwifery applications too, right? The myrrh, is it, is, is, was myrrh the one that's like topical? That they use to treat wounds, or was that something else? It's I'm thinking topical. You you can ingest it, and it smells good, and it's you know very much tied into a religious practice. You know, when the first Catholics got to the Amazon, there was no frankincense, but they found a plant of the same family, uh, which smells a lot like it, and the indigenous people use it as incense there. <laughs> um, okay, so speaking of the, I have one more Amazon question. You mentioned in the piece there's there's something called Piri Piri. Am I saying it right? Right. Okay. Yes. That that seems to be kind of their cure all for everything. What what is that exactly, and what does it do? And is it something that it's a great story? And for decades, ethnobotanists were sold this plant as Piri Piri. It's good as a, a female contraceptives and has all sorts of other uses. In fact, it's called the ginseng of the Amazon. Except that the plant was a sedge, which is kind of related to grasses. Doesn't have much chemistry going on there. So. Everybody thought that the indigenous peoples were kind of pulling our leg. But a, a colleague of mine learned the language, spent over a decade there. His name's Glenn Shepherd. And it turns out that Piri Piri does work for a lot of things because it's a sedge, but it's a sedge that's invaded by a fungus. And that uh -huh. fungus is related to ergot, which was the hallucinogen that led to the Salem witch trials, and which Albert Hoffman was studying. And when he diddled the chemical a little, came up with a 25th variation, which we know as LSD-25. So this is once again how fungi have had an important impact in our culture. And, and the way that Glenn essentially cracked the case was he took the stuff and then stood up and was able to, you know, juggle four balls at once and juggle behind his back when he was a pretty terrible juggler. This, he said, there's something going on with this stuff, you know, because the indigenous people said, oh, in addition to all the medicinal application, it makes you a better hunter. And so, yeah, you can see better, you can shoot better, you're stronger because of this stuff. But it took years of figuring out what the indigenous peoples were telling us before we really got the story straight. So this goes back to your earlier question about myth and, and symbolism and stuff like that. Just a lot of the time, we're not really sure what they're trying to tell us. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay, wait, you mentioned the Salem Witch Trial and the hallucinogens. I don't think I know that story. What's that story? Okay, we all know the Salem Witch Trials where these women were diagnosed as witches who claimed to see visions and, and go to bad places and do bad things. And the theory is that the uh, crop they were growing, which I think was wheat or rye, they had a, a wet winter and it was invaded by a fungus, uh, which is a fungus called ergot. And so they really were hallucinating, and they really were seeing devils and things like that. Um, and some, some were put to death. So, uh, you know, there are explanations for some of these things that seem sort of fantastic and might be just a bunch of 
malarkey, as our president would say, <laughs> but there may be a, a biological or, or a fungal basis to this. Interesting. And and just to back up here for a second, another colleague of mine, Brian Mora Rescue, uh, wrote a book called The Immortality Key, in which he posits that the origin of Christianity is not so much tied to Judaism as it is to ancient Greek practice called the Eleusinian Mysteries, when they were drinking something that caused them to hallucinate, and that was based on ergot, so that the uh, the, the Christian mass, uh, when you're drinking that stuff, and this is the blood, and this is the flesh, you, you may not understand what's going on there. He thinks it may have been that they were drinking ergot, and, and to them it was blood and flesh. I, I, I know this story because um, my friend Whitney Fishburn has a podcast where she talks about um kind of the intersection of of theology and stuff like that and she had a long interview with him which is really fascinating i listened to it on the train ride home one day and i was like my mind was sort of blown by that whole thing so it's interesting it's guy. Stuff. And, and, yeah. and and recently they found an altar near jerusalem which was full of marijuana okay <laughs> cannabis has moved around a lot in the ancient world as was opium and so you may have had cannabis as part of, of, of Judaism in this particular part of what is now Israel. The point being that these religions are not, you know, linear, that everybody did everything the same way all the time in all the places, and that uh, all uh, the so-called major religions, I never liked that term, have incorporated stuff from other religions or pre-existing religions and beliefs. So the idea that uh, Islam uh, didn't have anything to do with uh, mind-altering stuff. I mean, I guess it's possible, but you look at Zoroastrianism, and there's a colleague in, in British Columbia who's now found some of the same alkaloids in a plant they were ingesting, the Zoroastrians were ingesting, that are similar to that found in ayahuasca in the Amazon. So all of these things kind of connect in unanticipated ways, I think. Interesting. What's your take on on cannabis, by the way, as because there's that, you know, it used to be I mean, even when I was in high school, it was really kind of taboo almost. And, and you know, people did it, but it wasn't like it is now where it's, you know, socially accepted to the point where there's, you know, you can go and legally buy it in, in some states and stuff like that. Um, and there's I think the people that love it, uh, you know, want to say, no, no, it's harmless and it doesn't do anything and it's good for this, 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 and this, which is obviously true to some degree, but what's what's your take on it? Well, it's not as cool as it used to be <laughs> for, the, for the reasons you said. I think we grew up in the same era. Where it's kind of, you're kind of a buccaneer doing something that was forbidden. Uh, now when I go home and walk to the French Quarter, I get sick of the smell of marijuana because it's so ubiquitous. So like many of these plants, many of these drugs, many of these hallucinogens, which cannabis isn't, it's kind of been oversold as the cure for, for everything. Uh, I do think it has a place in the Western medical armamentarium. I mean, uh, I take CBD sometimes because it helps uh, with sleep and things like that. And clearly, you know, it can relax people. Clearly, uh, Western medicine doesn't have a great cure, even a great treatment for stress. So, yeah, it, 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 it's got a role to play. Um, but... Uh, there, there are some downsides to it. I did an interview with Hamilton Morris where he talked about this new syndrome where people that smoke it too much, and it's rare, but it exists. They, there's, a, there's a problem that exists which can make people quite sick. So I don't want to make it sound like reefer madness, like if you smoke a joint, you're going to die, because that's what we were told growing up, right? I mean, yeah. it was a gateway drug. If you smoke marijuana, you go on to harder drugs. Well, uh, that, by that definition, Gerber baby food was a gateway drug because if you... It, 
Gerber baby food growing up, and we didn't, and you ended up smoking cannabis. Not sure there's cause and effect. Yeah. My <laughs> um, okay, I've got a bunch more questions. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Mark Plotkin. Okay, we're back with Mark Plotkin. So, all right, let's. We got to talk about the all the, the 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 bad stuff now, all the climate change stuff, uh, because I'm interested in your. And I know you. When I asked you about this, you said I'm not a climatologist, and and that's fine. We understand that. However, you've been going to the Amazon for many years now. You've seen firsthand if there's changes. So, my first question is, you personally, what have you observed? You know, the the first couple times you've gone there versus now, what kind of changes have you seen? Well, a lot of my work, like I said, is in the Northeast Amazon, the country of Suriname on the Brazilian border. And when I started there in the late 70s, they had two rainy seasons, two dry seasons. You could almost set your clock by it. And now you can't because it changed over time. And this isn't something recent. This is in the last 10 years. So that, you know, that might sound like, oh, so what? Except when you make a living off the land and you have to eat what you farm, this can really wreak havoc with a lot of these people. But 15 years ago, I was in the Colombian Amazon with a, a medicine man. We're walking through his garden. I mean, here's me in my REI togs, and here he is in a breechcloth. And we're walking through the garden, and I see this section, all the cassava, which is their main crop, is dying. And I said, oh, is it a disease or what's going on there? He says, cambio de clima, climate change. Mm. So that uh, this is real. And I worked in Oaxaca with the mushroom cults 20 years ago. Uh, one of the Paramount shamans said to me, she said, you know, when I was a kid, there were two mushrooms that we like to use for treating particular conditions and they're gone. The climate's changing and it's dried up and they don't exist anymore. So climate change isn't something where, you know, somebody's flipped on or flipped off the light. It's been happening for a while, but it's when yeah. people live closer to the land that it affects them. And, you know, in an age where we're concerned about refugees and the borders and stuff like this, if people live off the land, can't live off the land, they end up somewhere else. And whether that's climate change in Syria, whether it's climate change in Haiti, uh, you're just creating more problems, first and foremost, for the people themselves. But ultimately, it impacts all of us. So... In Brazil, uh, it, it, does Brazil have the largest percentage of, uh, of of land that's in the rainforest, or or is it somewhere yes. else? Yes, sixty six percent of the Amazon is in Brazil. Okay, that's what I thought. So, you know that that Bolsonaro there. I mean, he's not there now, but it was there for a while. Um, this right. kind of Trumpian strongman type. How, how how bad is that to have somebody like that there? How much damage did he do? Well, we like to think that our country, you know, the world's oldest democracy, the wealthiest country, yada, yada, yada. I mean, one person could really change all that much in four years. And now we know that they can. Yeah. So when you had a president who was ardently anti-environment, nominally pro-business, uh, we had the fastest and 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 greatest extent of of deforestation in recorded history. You now have President Lula, who's trying to reverse a lot of those priorities and and doing a pretty good job. We have President Petro in Colombia, who hasn't gotten near the coverage that that Lula has. But he's been even more outspoken about the importance of conservation. And, you know, I, I had an argument with the Brazilian minister a couple of years ago where he said, we need jobs. And I said, well, everybody needs jobs. But I just came back from the soy farms in the state of Mato Grosso, and it's all mechanized. 
Now, I'm not blaming you for that. I mean, mechanized agriculture, the origins of it have a lot more to do with my country than yours. But when you can manage uh, these agricultural monocultures for miles and miles and miles with a handful of people and some big machines, you're not creating jobs. You're making the land untenable for all the Indians or peasants or caboclos or campesinos who once lived there. So this whole argument about if you're for conservation, you're against jobs is absolute nonsense. And that point can't be said uh, too many times here or there. Why do you think people like that deny the climate change? Because there, there's definitely, as I see it anyway, this sort of alliance of the fossil fuel people and these, you know, uh, autocratic governments like Putin, like the, you know, uh, Bolsonaro when he was in Brazil. You know, you've got Orban, you've got in South Africa. Why do they want this? Do, I mean, do they just not care? Like, what do you, what do you think the, the rationale is? Let the record show he is making the money symbol with his. <laughs> Typically, uh, in, in in strongman culture, as I observe it, and I'm not a political scientist, strongmen are supported by oligarchs. Yeah. And that's true everywhere. That's not just Putin. Okay. And oligarchs are all about the money. So there's money to be made at the top of the food chain. Uh, if you're not having to grow what you eat, and, and what do people want when they make a billion dollars? Well, most of them, certainly not all of them, is more money. Yeah. So that becomes a self-perpetuating phenomenon. Also, you get into this this sort of mindset, and I listened to Ruth Ben-Gid on your show, this sort of mindset where they all start thinking alike, where, you know, if, if one strong man's doing it, I've got to do it. And that uh, anybody who's agitating for poor people or, or, or landless peasants, whatever, is against me. And you can make a lot of noise about how you're looking out for the little guy, but we all know that that's not really what they do. And, and also, there, you get into these belief systems. It's like people saying, well, do you believe in climate change? I'm like, I don't have to believe in climate change. It's real. It's a fact. It's like saying, well, do you believe, how can you believe in evolution? It's just a theory. And I said, yeah, like the theory of gravity, right? <laughs> yeah, go fly. It doesn't <laughs> matter if you believe in it. It's real. It's here. And we got to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. So now you you are uh, part of the Amazon conservation team. Right, you're the what, yes. what's your title? The co-founder co is that what it is? Yeah, I'm the president. That's right. Uh, I, I work for large organizations like the World Wildlife Fund, Conservation International, and they were focused on saving species. And then you had other organizations that focused on helping indigenous peoples. But 30 years ago, the best rainforests were in indigenous areas, and nobody was helping them for conservation purposes. So I saw an opportunity. Uh, to partner with these people to help them protect their culture and their forest and protect a lot of forest in the, in the process. So we have had the opportunity to partner with over 100 tribes in South America, mostly Amazonia, but some outside the Amazon, to help them map and improve management over 90 million acres of ancestral rainforest. That's our niche. That's great. That's great. So this, this is, a, is this a nonprofit? It's a nonprofit. We're on the web at amazonteam.org. And uh, we don't have a big fundraising department. We don't call people at home and ask them for money. We're not stuffing your mailbox with letters asking you for more money. But, you know, this is how we gather support. Programs like this, through my podcast, uh, giving talks, writing books, letting people know that we're not going to take their money and use it to raise more money. We're going to take it and use it to save or try and save the rainforest. Which, um, you know, needs to be saved, because if we don't save it, we're all going to die. Not to be not to be alarmist, but, uh, you know, 
Well, I, I, in my last book, The Amazon, what everybody needs to know that I did for Oxford Press, I said, let me be clear. Thank you. Uh, let me be clear. Uh, the, the battle over climate change cannot be won in the Amazon, but it can be lost. There so you go. That, I like that. Yeah. Yes, we have uh, an obligation to look out for ourselves doing this. I mean, we're already seeing, uh, uh, you know, Brazil's breadbasket is not the Amazon. It's eastern Brazil, and they've had terrible droughts, and now they're having terrible downpours because part of the manifestation of climate change is the rainy season gets more rainy and the dry season gets more dry, and then they switch places, which wreaks havoc. And it's even been found to impact uh, stuff in our own breadbasket here in the States. We're changing uh, forest uh, deforestation in the Amazon is believed to be impacting uh, rains in the American Midwest, which, let's face it, feeds the world, and which, let's face it, in an age where Ukraine is being uh, absolutely crushed, that uh, Ukraine was a bas- breadbasket of a lot of the world at the same time. Right. So here's a question that I have that that I'm almost afraid to ask. Um, and I get, again, I know you're not a climatologist, so I, I, I'll take it with a great, a greater, so we'll, we'll have that caveat, but uh, where is this going? You know, you, if things continue the way that they are, you hear a lot of people like say about the, it's it, it, the, the clock is almost at midnight and you have people that know a lot about this stuff that are, you know, crazy gluing their hands to the floors of places to get attention. And, um, People are who who are in that field are are shouting from the rooftops and have been for quite some time. Is it going to be a thing where there's just droughts and hurricanes and and like you said, like places that grew a lot of food suddenly stop growing a lot of food and there's going to be famines? Is it going to be some it releases some plague? Like what what do you think is going to happen? What 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 are the projections like? Look, people ask me all the time: with the Amazon, is the glass half full or is it half empty? And the bottom line is any glass that's half full is half empty, (laughs) right? And vice versa. So here's the bad news. Okay, the impact of climate change is already there. You've got rising temperatures. You've got diminished rainfall. You've got more rainfall in some areas. You've got increasing droughts in some areas. You've got variations in seasonality, like I told you about the wet and the dry seasons Mm -hmm. moving around. And the species of the rainforest, both the animals and the plants and even the fungi, is the species are not adapted to rapid changes in, in temperature, like, you know, animals here, they used to a winter, they used to a summer, not there. Also, many of the animals like birds and monkeys, if you cut a road through a rainforest, they will not come down and cross that road. Birds will not fly. Some birds will not fly from one patch of forest to another. So these changes have already happened in a significant amount of the Amazon, between a quarter and a third. Um, but here's the good news. You have President Lula in Brazil saying, no more deforestation. You've got President Petro in Colombia, who really needs to get more attention for saying the same thing. You have Biden. You know, people think he's this old guy over the hill. He's made several impassioned speeches about the rainforest. He met with President Lula. It was a love fest. So the good news is that people are paying attention. Uh, there's more money going into this than before. Uh, there's more tension going into this before. And let's face it, we're all coming out of this dreadful pandemic. Ecotourism is going to go through the roof. Right. And people want to see nature because they've been living in their damn house for three years. So yeah. the value of standing rainforests, the value of coral reefs that can only go up. And so the idea that uh, the only good rainforest is a dead rainforest or that we need to cut it all down to make cheap soy for the, the Chinese or, or chopsticks or something. Uh, I, I'm sorry, but the wonder drugs tomorrow being turned into cheap soy and chopsticks and the rivers being poisoned so people can have gold necklaces strikes me as a pretty lame bargain. 
Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree. Um, okay, so we're coming up on time. I want to. We had talked before this about uh, your background, your personal background with with regards to to Russia, and uh, your uh, ancestors basically fleeing uh, the czar um, at every turn. So, uh, and you said you had a good Nicholas II story. So, I want to hear about all this. I had a great uncle, uh, born and raised in in Vilnius, Vilna, Lithuania. That used to be a center of, of Jewish culture before the Nazis essentially killed all of them. And he left in the early 1900s to, to come to the U.S. because they were being conscripted for the army of the czar. Okay, the story doesn't change. This is why Jews are following this, these headlines uh, so closely. But he told me one time he went to a parade in Vilna, and his mother held him up in the air so he could see over the crowd. And there went a man in the most fantastic carriage he'd ever seen. And he said, gee, mama, who's that? And she said, that's our Nicholas. Wow. Okay. Likewise, the other side of the family, they came from Belarus, uh, and then went to Kiev and settled there. And then when the pogroms swept in and the uh, czar wanted to conscript all the Jews for the army, and we all know that people in the Russian army are not treated well, soldiers not treated well. Well, the Jews were treated much, much worse back then. You had uh, Tsar Alexander II, the reformer, who tried to lift the burden from the Jews, and then he was assassinated. And then right. things got really worse in around 1880. So we're talking 20 years later where things were, were bad and getting worse still, and they all left for the new world, and here we are. Well, I'm glad that I'm glad that you made it. Plus, Nicholas II, one of the worst military, you know, overseer general types of all time. I mean, really just he may have some competition these days there, Greg. <laughs> it would be like Don Jr. being in charge of like like the military for a war. Like, I can do this. I can, yeah. And everyone's like, oh no. How, how no. difficult can it be? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a terrible idea. Uh it's just a just a really bad idea. So okay, um Amazon conservation team, if you're listening to this and you wanna and you want to support Mark and his work, uh check that out. I'll put a, a link to that obviously in the in the show notes. Uh where else can people find you? Well, I'm on Twitter at Doc Mark Plotkin. Uh, I have a, a web page, a personal web page, a lot of my writings, markplotkin.com. And most important of all is amazonteam.org. You can support us on the web. Like I said, we'll take your money and spend it on conservation, not on fundraising. It's something we're very proud of. That's good. Um, it's been uh, It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much for taking the time. Well, Greg, the opportunity to have a chat with you after listening to so many of your wonderful podcasts is something I've been looking forward to for a long time. So I hope it. I that. hope it. I hope I didn't let you down. I wanted. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. I. I it, we need to geek out on more historical stuff. I don't know. I'll have you on again, and we'll just do a geek out on historical weird obscure stories episode. That'll be fun. You want a you want a closing story? I want a closing story. Give me a closing Ethnobotanists story. see things through the lens of ethnobotany. When I was a kid growing up and I'd look at, you know, uh, John Ford cowboy movies or, uh, uh, you know, Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, that stuff. I remembered how uh, the Indians to seal the deal and, and signify their friendship would smoke the peace pipe. They take a hit, they pass it to the guy next to him and so on and so forth. Well, let me tell you why that's the case, because those Indians were smoking nicotiana rustica, which is nine times uh, more potent, nine times more nicotine than cigarettes. So when you took a hit of that stuff, you had to pass it around the circle for your head to clear. And nobody but an ethnobotanist can explain that to you. <laughs> That makes sense. I mean, I, yeah, you know, a good cigar has that effect too. You're like, you know, you, you smoke it for a little while and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, wow. Yeah. 
it's uh <laughs> it's fun no that's good okay that's a good story to close on um once again amazon conservation team mark plotkin thanks so much my pleasure thank you greg The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fawcett. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail. MSW Media.